is pre-recorded. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt here. The last radio hour of the week is the Hillsdale Dialogue. That music means we are joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And this week, by visiting assistant professor at Hillsdale of English, Patrick Timmis. And it's, we're throwing Patrick into the wolves uh, pit here for the first time ever. He gets tossed into the middle of the Arn and Hewitt conversation. Professor Timmis, welcome. Keep your head down and you'll be fine. Thanks, Hugh. Glad to be here. <laughs> so you're a summa cum laude graduate of Hillsdale. Before you went to the university and then Duke to get your Ph.D. and master's, respectively, in English, why did you go back to the frozen tundra of Hillsdale? Well, I mean, this is home here. Um, I'm from uh, Michigan, and, uh, you know, I think in, in some ways my four years at Hillsdale uh, were maybe the first time that I had felt like I, this, is, this is where I live, this is where I belong. We've done some moving around. Um, so you know, when there's the opportunity to come back up here, uh, it, was, it was a no-brainer. And the opportunity to teach Shakespeare. Now, Dr. Ron, you only bring your show ponies, as you like to call them, onto the Hillsdale Dialogue. What have you to say about Professor Timmis and his debut on the, on the program? Uh, well, I had him in class when he was a freshman, so I'm Uh-oh. fond of him. I, I didn't think he was very smart, but he was very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, no, he's a, he's a fine young man, and uh, he's, he's going to work out, I think. Uh, and this is we're, we're going to find out in these dialogues whether he's going to work out or not. That's we are. Now, wh- what we're doing is we're launching into Shakespeare as a result of Glenn Elmer's book, The Soul of Politics. We found out that Harry Jaffa was much attached to Shakespeare. And so I thought we would be joined by Stephen Smith, but he's hiding from Larry and I because he's done the show with us before. So they tricked young <laughs> Timmis into being here and talking about Lear and Macbeth at the same time. But Professor Timmis, there are a bunch of different ways to approach Shakespeare. You can approach him mm-hmm. biographically. You can approach him thematically. You can approach him yeah. in the comedies, the tragedy, the history. You suggested we start with Macbeth and Lear. So, like, no warm-up, nothing. Just dump into Macbeth <laughs> and Lear. What, what's the deal with that? Uh, well, I, I know that uh, you guys got into uh, Macbeth uh, a little bit last week. But, you know, uh, King Lear is what I, um, I start my my great books class off with, um, you know, it's, yeah, you, you, you can absolutely ease into him. Uh, and, and if you're going to do that systematically, I think starting with the comedies is the way to go. But if, if you want to get right into, you know, I think Shakespeare at his best, um, going to the late tragedies is, I think, just the, the way to go here. Our, our friend, Dr. David Allen White, who taught Shakespeare at the Academy for a quarter century, always says Lear is the height of his power. And it's a 1606 yeah. play. I did not know Macbeth was written in the same year as Lear. Doesn't that make you feel inadequate, Dr. Arn? When you think about William Shakespeare topping off Macbeth and Lear in the same year? Uh, inadequate. Well, Shakespeare makes anybody feel inadequate if they that, read with attention. Uh, uh, Lear... Uh, you know, I I had a class with Professor Jaffa on both King Lear and Macbeth, and I've always found Lear very difficult, very difficult to make sense of, very difficult to explain an obvious contradiction, which Professor Jaffa wrote a beautiful and complicated essay about Lear, 
And he starts with that contradiction, and I'm not certain that his explanation of it is satisfactory. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a difficult play, and it's you know a deep tragic play, uh, and so it's, it's of course extremely worth talking about. So let's begin, Professor Timmis, with why 1606. Why does the date matter? What's going on around yeah. Shakespeare as he writes this? Yeah, well, I mean, 1606 is an incredibly politically charged moment in English history. Uh, and, and particularly in London, and I, I think of it as not unlike uh, the aftermath of 9-11 uh, in the U.S., uh, in New York especially, because you've just had uh, the, uh, a failed attempt, but uh, what was only, you know, only by the skin of uh, their teeth failure very nearly came off, uh, not only on the king's life, but on the lives of the entire royal family, of uh, the entire parliament, everyone in parliament, and all the bishops. And this would have been uh, the coming together of parliament at Westminster on November 5th, and uh, a group of uh, rebellious and uh, probably justifiably uh, grieved Catholic subjects who were being uh, religiously suppressed by James purchased a uh, a room underneath Parliament, which you could do at that time. They, that, that changed uh, and filled it with gunpowder. And uh, James Security Services found them down there the morning of uh, of the opening of Parliament when they all would have been in the building. Uh, and you know, within a couple of hours, you would have had essentially a complete overturning of uh, the English political system, at, probably followed by an invasion from Spain. Uh, This goes deep into the public consciousness, and uh, there's this intense feeling of vulnerability and what happens if you lose the king. Now, they've just been through this over the last hundred years. Every time um, the monarch dies and a new monarch has come to the throne with the Tudors, the state religion changes. There are executions among the chief ministers and uh, clergy. And Elizabeth had provided 50 years of stability to, you know, a country that desperately needed it, and then names James as her successor on her deathbed. And there's this hope that James is going to continue to provide uh, stability, and he has children that, uh, unlike Elizabeth, um, but this brings you face-to-face with just how fragile that stability actually is. Um, and, and so they're going to the context that we're writing these plays in. The radical Catholics intend to bring everything down. I mean, quite physically, they intend to bring down the, the, right. the building of Parliament, the king, the bishops, everybody down. And I, the invasion of Spain is behind it. So, Dr. Arne, did Churchill ever talk about Fox Day? Did he ever speak about this plot? Oh, yeah. Well, it's uh, in England today and in Churchill's time, it's a sort of a folk thing. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a guy. Fox was the bad guy, and right. and you you if you're a kid in England in November, you uh, build yourself a guy. You take a you make an effigy, and you go around and you say to people, "A penny for the guy," and people are supposed to give you a penny. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a big thing, and and it's you know the way Patrick described it is how it must have been received, because it was, you know, 
uh, all they had to do was light the fuse, and they didn't quite get that done. But by the time of you know the, the 20th century, it's a joke. It's a, you know it's a serious thing, mm-hmm. but it's a joke too. It, it, but it wasn't a joke then. And when Shakespeare sat down, I understand Lear coming out of this. The, the appeal not to divide the kingdom. I don't understand what Macbeth has to do. We'll come back and talk about that. But Lear is obviously the appeal, Timis, uh, Professor Timis, not to divide the United mm. Crown. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, and this is something that James himself says to uh, his own son, uh, you know, and, and runs very much counter to James' whole um, political philosophy, which is that if I'm going to successfully unite the crowns of Scotland and England and Ireland and not just have these people hate each other, which they more or less did, uh, we're going to need to foster some kind of a sense of a united Great Britain, a kind of uh, trans, uh, you know, a, a, a nationalism that embraces uh, the entire British Isles. Uh, and and to, to divide that kingdom into three, uh, Lear is the king of Britain, not of England. Um, I think for anybody hearing that in 1606, that, that's setting off alarm bells for you. This is not going to end well. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, very briefly, the modern expression of this, which is Brexit. And even as we speak, as we record this Hillsdale Dialogue and all Hillsdale Dialogues, are collected at HughForHillsdale.com or just put in Hillsdale Dialogue on iTunes and you'll find 412 of them. But we are at this moment, when we take this one in 2021, on the brink of a rupture between Great Britain and Europe as deep as uh, any that we have seen in modern times since World War II with a potential trade war. And it's all about the unity of the kingdom, the unity that was threatened in King Lear. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I do want to remind everyone... All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, including the online courses, the application to go and attend there to take Professor Timmis and, and suffer through the RN Freshman Seminar. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. It's another non-stop action-packed information blitz. Kind of makes you tingle, doesn't it? Hang on. Hugh Hewitt will be right back. Welcome back, America. We have launched into Shakespeare on the Hilltale Dialogues, but not too quick. I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Timmis, professor of English at at um, Hillsdale College, and Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. These conversations dating back to Homer and up to the present are all collected at hughforhillsdale.com and in iTunes under Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Ron, I mentioned before we went to break, and we're going to come back to Lear and Macbeth in a moment. Um, the headlines this week from the Financial Times, Britain's game of Brexit chicken will end badly. In threatening to repudiate its deal with the European Union, the United Kingdom is undermining its credibility as a reliable partner. Over at the Telegraph, Dublin preparing emergency plans for EU-UK trade war. Leo Vardarkar says the Irish government is dusting down the no-Brexit deals in case Northern Ireland protocol dispute uh, escalates. The Northern Ireland dispute is about whether or not the United Kingdom is united, isn't it? That's right. The, uh, so you, you have to remember, by the way, that... James I, before whom this play was performed, he was from Scotland. 
and the constituent parts of Great Britain and Northern Ireland are England, Scotland, and Wales. That's Britain. And then it used to be Ireland, all of it. And uh, that was a troubled history, and still is. And Northern Ireland is the Protestant part and close to England. And, you know, it's right there beside, right at the top of Ireland itself. And so Ireland is close to the European Union. And Northern Ireland wants to be close to Britain. But how can they have a border in common with no customs duties across it if one of them's in and one of them's out? And so what that means is the ancient divisions of the British Isles are coming into play here. And in Scotland, there remains the effort to revive the referendum, which was rejected rather dramatically by Scots voters within the decade. 55 to 45, I believe, was the final vote on Scottish independence. But these ties that James tried to forge, it's been 400 years and it's not settled. Well, it, you know, we're in a revolutionary time now, and uh, nothing, nothing is settled, right? Uh, is it uh, England, you know, if you, if you look at the British Isles, England is much the biggest and much the richest part of the whole. And the government's down there. And, you know, my wife is from the, the northwest, and that's the border area. And so the nobles in that area, she was not among them, um, the nobles in that area got their strength, it's in, it's in King Lear that this is true, got their strength from the fact that they could protect the border from the Scots. And, and so today, there's a difference between them, and the Scottish people are very ready to go by some majority, and, uh, uh, well... Very ready to go. They, they actually have never got a majority for that, but you know, they, they polls show that they would today. What's well, something about which you're enthusiastic until the actual choosing arrives? I think yeah, when you have to choose, that that concentrates the mind wonderfully. To quote Dr. Johnson, you know, another thing is um, those. Uh, you know, England, uh, Great Britain is old, and that means it emerges from feudal and pre-feudal times. And now, the unity of the United Kingdom, that's also old now, but they're discarding the traditions that made it what it was. In other words, you know, the Scots and and the Welsh and the Northern Irish fought bravely in the wars, in the great 20th century wars, and in the 19th century wars. And so they have a common history together, but that history, as in America, is being forgotten. And so the tugs of that old story may not be as strong as they used to be. Uh, uh, but the consequences of division, which we'll come back and talk about in Lear and of, uh, of ambition, as we'll talk about in Macbeth, uh, loom large and perilous for the United Kingdom. I, I think that Northern Ireland cut off from... Uh, Great Britain will lead to just disastrous repercussions for the uh, Good Friday Agreement. We'll talk more about Lear and Macbeth after the break. Dr. Arne, Professor Timmis, don't go anywhere, America. The Hilltale Dialogue continues. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us.
non-stop action-packed information blitz the hugh hewitt show is coming right back Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I am launching a series on Shakespeare with Dr. Arne and Professor Timmis and Professor Smith uh, alternating. And we're just going to go very high right now into Macbeth. Uh, Professor Timmis, can you give us the quick summary so people understand why we're talking about Macbeth and Lear in the first of this series? Yes. I mean, these are considered two of, um, I think, the, the, the high point of Shakespeare's career, um, 1606, is and through maybe 1610, I think, is when uh, many of his greatest uh, his plays are published and performed. Uh, and these two are coming at a particularly politically tense moment um, in, in the wake of a, a massive attempted terrorist attack and, and, and trying to figure out how do we go forward and, and reestablish political stability. And so what is the what is the takeaway from Macbeth that don't shoot at yeah. the king? Is that it? I, I think that's basically it. Uh, James has uh, a, a very high sense of the sanctity of a king. Uh, he views himself as God's anointed, as somehow elect by God to lead God's chosen people. Um, that's very much how the English view themselves at this time as a new Israel. And that's how the, the, the Scottish nobles in Macbeth think about the assassination of their king, Duncan, as sacrilege, as um, you know, a, an attack on the temple of the Lord. And that's exactly how um, James Bishops, for instance, are talking about this, uh, this gunpowder plot that they've just survived. So in Macbeth... We're laying down the principle that you don't kill kings. In Lear, we're going to lay down a different principle, which is you don't divide kingdoms and kill kingdoms. But in this, we're laying down the idea that you don't kill kings. What did Dr. Jaffa talk about, Larry Arn, at Hillsdale so many years ago that intrigued him in Macbeth? Well, uh, it's important to know that uh, Macbeth and, uh, sorry, that Lincoln and Churchill were both deeply familiar with Macbeth. There's testimony that they knew the play. Churchill had the play basically memorized. And Lincoln uh, was engaged in several conversations with Shakespearean actors about the different versions of Macbeth, because there were more than one floating around at the time. And he had detailed opinions about which rendering was right. So that piques Professor Jaffa's interest. Uh, the way he presents the two plays is that uh, uh, the, the theme of Macbeth is that Macbeth is a deeply moral man who's undone by a wife who, and, and she uses his loyalty to her, which is also a moral point, right? So his moral inclinations are at war with each other, and she gets him to murder his kinsman and house guest to get his throne. And he is undone by that. Eventually, she is undone by that. And his, Professor Jaffa's reading of the play is that the meaning of the play is in the relationship between those two beings. Uh, and that, in the end, they, but especially she, rebel against nature. And the key passage is that uh, his love for her and his sort of obedience to her 
is born of their conjugal relationship, that is to say, husband and wife, a very deep and important relationship. But she says at one point uh, that uh, in order to get this thing done, uh, she would be unsexed. She calls on, effectively, Satan to unsex her and to she would kill the baby at her breast. So in other words... She is rebelling against the thing that also makes her bond with her husband. And so that's, they, they destroy themselves. And, and, uh, and Professor Jaffa reads the play, and I, this makes really awesome sense to me because I love this kind of thing anyway, that the moral order is ultimately imperial, that you can't... Uh, you can't rebel against it except at your cost. And so that play and his reading of it, that, that all just makes powerful and sublime sense to me. Professor uh, Timmis, does it make powerful sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that, that essay from uh, Professor Jaffa is a really fantastic reading of the play, and I think even the end of the play where these things that are seem impossibilities in nature, you know, a wood rising and coming to defeat Macbeth, well, those things start to happen, right? When you, when you start to, to break down human nature, well, nature itself is going to rise against you and, and restore order. Now, in terms of Duncan, do we have sympathy for him? Is he a bad king? No, it's the point that he's not. He's a good guy, and he's just recently justly and generously rewarded Macbeth for his war service and promoted him. So, no, there's nothing wrong with Duncan. And so is Duncan surprised that people want him dead? Uh, Well, he's killed in his sleep, uh, so I don't know. I don't remember him being surprised. I don't remember him knowing it. Professor Timmis, is he... Is he surprised uh, he that people want him gone? Yeah, he comes into Macbeth's castle with, with uh, total trust. Uh, and, and, in fact, even comments on, on how warm the welcome is, uh, how peaceful um, you know, this, this coming to rest after battle is. Uh, it's completely uh, unprepared for any attempt on his life. So, so what is the source of her ambition, Professor Timmis? Because if she's the bad actor who influences Macbeth to do the bad thing, and it's unequivocally bad, and it's unexpected, yeah. what is driving her? We don't see that. Uh, she, she finds out that Duncan is coming, and her first thought is murder. You know, Macbeth is, is kind of egged on by the three weird sisters. Uh, w- with his lady, with Lady Macbeth, this seems to be, you know, a rot that's already set in. You know, and and I, think, I think Shakespeare's pushing there on the, the, the fact that, that evil and disloyalty for people in the Renaissance was something that fundamentally you couldn't explain, right? It's, it's Satan's rebellion against God. Why would you do that? Why would you reject someone who you have bonds of gratitude and love who has treated you well? So it's, it's then, to me, the takeaway, Doctor, is that you can never rest secure in a human friendship. 
I don't, I don't, if you can't trust Beth to have a house guest Duncan without killing him in his sleep, isn't that an admonition to all rulers everywhere and all time to keep one eye open? Well, yeah, but um, um, it's uh, the, the complication with that. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching Aristotle this term, and we're in the, the two books that are mostly about friendship. And friendship is the highest human association. And that means that you can trust a person if you are a good person and they are a good person and you judge rightly. Uh, however, it introduces a complication if there's a superiority and inferiority, including one of station. If you're the king, then that changes things. And it's hard to be friends. And uh, so he, he Duncan, Duncan is like... Uh, King Lear, he underestimates the importance of that. Uh, but you know, Macbeth himself, it's probable that Duncan didn't know Lady Macbeth as well as he knew Macbeth. Macbeth himself, it just takes enormous pressure to get him to do this thing, and he makes one of the most powerful moral arguments in all of literature against the doing of it just before his wife changes his mind. But he does it. And so, so what I wanted to get to is that the American founding prevents our having a Macbeth moment because we don't let anyone become uh, a king. You're limited in term and you're limited in power. And so there really is, you might be able to have friends. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, because you can't be a monarch. Yeah, you won't Doctor. be there for a long time. That's right. I mean, uh, you know, it's a it's a form that I admire. That uh, if your brother or your dad or your best friend uh, or, or your sister becomes president, you refer to them after that as Mister President or Madam President. Uh, and on the other hand, nope, everybody knows that's not going to last, right? You you you're going to and and. In, in private, I know, for example, Harry Hopkins called Franklin Roosevelt Franklin. But in public, he always referred to him as Mr. President. So the forms are there in a, in, in, a, uh, in a nation like this because the offices are not by birth and permanently held. They and that is, move that's the genius moment. We don't end up with the Macbeth moment. We end up with the 9-11, but not a Macbeth moment. Uh, now... Professor Timmis, contrast that with Lear, who brings this on himself. He's not murdered. He's committing suicide for his kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Macbeth, in some ways, I think, is uh, a very hopeful play politically in that uh, the, the kingdom rises against uh, Macbeth and, and Malcolm, uh, the rightful heir, is going to return uh, and, and restore a, an order based on friendship. And, and we don't see that in Lear. Uh, after the division of the kingdoms, you immediately have civil war uh, between the three sisters, and will ultimately end with Lear dead, his three daughters dead, um, you know, a number of people who have opportunistically taken advantage of uh, this conflict and are on the make, have, you know, who have been driving um, some of these, these assassinations and these murders. And then uh, kind of an attempt to move back towards 
a restored kingdom at the end, but the best idea out there seems to be, well, we'll just take these three kingdoms still, and the, the last three people standing will rule them kind of in a loose alliance, and you sort of know where that's going. Yeah, well, it's kind of scary. I've seen Ian McKellen do this play. Uh, we'll come back after the break and talk about it. It's actually scary to watch Lear, and we'll talk about that after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. Uh, the Hillsdale Dialogue rolls on. Everything Hillsdale is found over at hillsdale.edu. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I saw Ian McKellen play Lear at UCLA and was stunned by how ferocious it is and how physically taxing a role it is. Uh, Professor Timmis is my guest, along with uh, Dr. Leon, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. Lear is terrifying, uh, Professor Timmis, is it not? It is perhaps the most terrifying thing in English literature. And why is that? I mean, I know why it's a, it's just yeah. utterly hopeless that the everything is is crashed and burned and you have a naked, crazy king in the wind. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a wonderfully uplifting message. It's not. And, and in some ways, it's underlined by the fact that it's not the ending of this story that people knew. Uh, people knew it as sort of a tragic comedy in which Lear falls. Um, but then is restored. Cordelia, the good daughter, is victorious, and, and you kind of go through suffering and are purged. Well, Shakespeare takes that original uh, storyline and, and makes you think that that's what's going to happen, right? Lear's holding Cordelia on his lap and, and says, she, you know, if she breathes, this, this will redeem everything we've been through, and thinks she does breathe, right? He's holding a, a feather to her mouth. And she doesn't. And Kent, who is sort of the, the, the blunt, you know, straight-talking counselor, asks, is this the promised end? Is this where we're headed? And although I think there are moments in the play where you see you know, possibilities of a kind of personal redemption or a restoration of personal relationships, that, that basic problem of civil strife, civil division, I don't think that we get any kind of a roadmap for how are we going to get out of this. We don't. Uh, It's bleak, Doctor. And the English have to figure their own way out, and it requires a civil war and regicide, doesn't it? Yeah, so uh, I've come to a suggestion while I've been listening to Patrick. If we go through all the history plays, we should come back to these two plays and talk about them again, because they present... Uh, a crisis that's fictional, they're not real characters in it, but Lear in particular. Uh, Lear is presented, this is Professor Jaffa's reading of the play, by the way. Uh, Lear is, is addressing a problem that proves intractable. He, uh, Professor Jaffa entitles his essay, The Limits of Politics. Lear is trying to arrange for a succession. And he's got these two vile daughters and this one great daughter, and Professor Jaffa speculates he knows their characters. And he asks them to praise him in order to get them committed. And then he can make his division. And Professor Jaffa notes that three is the number of balance of power. Two is always war. That's why my wife and I always thought we had to have at least three children. (laughs) Two, you only get war. 
and uh, and so he he gets this done right, and and yet Cordelia, who's his favorite and the great one, she disappoints him in making these speeches, and that means either he's misestimated her or else she's greater than he maybe. And so the whole thing comes apart because, and remember, this is the key point. This is why the Constitution of the United States, uh, in, in principle, monarchy is the greatest form of rule if you can have a wise ruler, right? Because checks and balances and all that stuff, that'll just be in the way of such a person. But constitutionalism is better because people are not perfect. And for one thing, kings do not have able sons or daughters all the time. And so Lear is trying to perform something that's beyond the human. He's trying to rule beyond his time. To have and, that, and that is why, you know, I, I originally when Professor Timmis sent me his outline, I said, really, we're starting with Lear and Macbeth, but it's actually starting with the argument for constitutionalism. Because yeah. it's, it's the failure of monarchy, isn't it, Professor Timmis? I think so, yeah. And, and so when you teach your students... Which one do you teach, and in what order, and then what do you go to next? With um, So in, in my uh, introductory class, we start with Lear, and then we actually go uh, to Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost, which is a post-Civil War uh, meditation, really, on, on <laughs> what is proper monarchy, right? A monarchy where you can rule eternally, right? God is the only, for Milton, the only good monarch, the only true monarch. Um, and contrasted with a kind of tyranny that is a seizing of power. And, um, and perhaps, you know, although I, I don't think Lear himself is, is satanic, uh, what Dr. Arne is saying there about attempting to rule beyond your time, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what we see right in Milton's vision is an attempt to to grasp monarchy and harness it to you know personal ambitions that go beyond what you're created to do and on that note we're going to come back with the histories next week I'll I'll get the uh, order figured out but we will end up back at Lear and Macbeth because it's an actual wonderful way to begin what we set out to do last week, which is we know we're going to end up. We're going to end up back at Lear and Macbeth, but we're going to travel history's path to get there. Professor Timmis, welcome and great to have you. Dr. Larry Arn, a pleasure having you back. As always, all things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Adam and Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. I'll talk to you Monday, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.